All right. Well, welcome back, everybody, to the fifth and I think the final episode of this podcast series, Sean. So we've we've been here a while. We've been recording lots of content. We've mm-hmm. been talking a lot. And hopefully at the end of this, that exhausts, you know, at least this um, this season of discussion around the topic of apologetics. And so for those of you who might be finding this for the first time, this is uh, 2020. Uh, Faith is Not Blind, Intro to Apologetics podcast here at 514 Church. We're doing a class right now. This this podcast is supposed to be a supplement to it rather than a reading uh, assignment or a book or something. We are uh, recording this to dive deeper into some of the topics of what we would call classical apologetics. And so if you haven't listened to the first four episodes, I would encourage you to go back. It kind of sets the foundation for everything. And today uh, we're going to talk about something that I think is very interesting, Mm -hmm. maybe like the most interesting part. Like it's important to set the foundation the Mm -hmm. way that we have. Um, But we talked a little bit about the fine tuning of life last podcast. And we talked about just how complex human existence is. Mm -hmm. It's not just that we exist. It's that we exist in the complexity that we do um, with the, what seems to be pretty clearly a design Mm -hmm. in, in intelligibility. Yep. Uh, that we as Christians believe points to an intelligent designer. And so I want to talk about some of those, the the um, the implications of that complexity. Right. And the first one is the fact that we are beings with mind. Right. And what I mean by that is like, we consciously experience the world. Mm-hmm. We don't just exist and we don't just instinctually react to things. We have memory we narrate our experience in our mind. We're aware of our existence. We're aware of our beginning. We're aware of our impending end. We're, we have awareness and consciousness. And so, like, what is that? Right. Where does that come from? And what are the different worldviews explanations for how we are that way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's traditionally being uh, called in philosophy the mind-body problem. Do we just have a brain? Or is there a mind as well as the brain? Obviously, I think a naturalist would just have to say we only have a brain um, because a mind is immaterial. Or if they say that we have a mind, well, then it's just a result of physical processes from the brain, like chemical reaction and all the electrochemical stuff that's going on up there. Um, but these, this has serious implications uh, through all of these topics that we're going to be talking about. They're all really kind of linked, just like the last four that we talked about. We're pretty all linked together. Um, Consciousness, free will, morality, and then our experience of pain and suffering and and what some call evil. Um, So some have said, you know, consciousness is at once the most familiar thing in the world and the most mysterious. There's nothing we know more about directly than consciousness, but is extraordinarily hard to reconcile it with everything else we know. Why does it exist? What does it do? How could it possibly arise from neural processes in the brain? These questions are among the most intriguing in all of science, and that's from Thomas Nagel. Um, that is a problem, and the, the implication then is, is that if consciousness is an illusion and that we don't uh, actually have this, uh, that the experience of consciousness is just this some sort of brain illusion, then that means that we don't have free will and that morality is just something that we make up and therefore any pain and suffering we encounter is also an illusion. Very Eastern in a, in a very way, you know, in a very real way. So uh, 
I think it's good to go through all of these and remember that they all link together because of the kind of snowball effect that if one isn't true, then it affects everything else that then really affects how we live and how we're going to um, structure our society in some yeah. ways. So consciousness is a term that basically uh, uh, means our experience of the world, right? Right. So we do experience the world. Mm -hmm. We do have conscious existence. And so, again, like we've been talking about this whole time with all these different topics, in order for a worldview to be worth its salt, mm -hmm. it has to be able to intelligently come to a conclusion about what consciousness is and where it comes from. Correct. Because to even ask the question is to be conscious. Right. To give right. an answer <coughs> is to be conscious. To learn right. is to be conscious. To mm -hmm. have a dialogue with somebody is to be conscious. To right. remember what they said. Like it's all encapsulated in consciousness. Right. So if you don't have an intelligible, reasonable explanation for what it is and where it comes from, then again, I would I would posit that that's mm -hmm. not a good worldview. Right. That's not a, a worldview that successfully does what a worldview is supposed to do. Correct. So why don't we? So why don't we talk about it? Let's let's talk about consciousness, the theory of mind, or, or mm -hmm, whatever you mm -hmm. know, whatever we wanna we wanna call it. Well, here's the thing: is that um, it's it's seen as this kind of esoteric thing, and that somehow science can't um, address it, but it can. There's a neurosurgeon who's also a Christian named Michael Egnor, and I learned a lot from this guy uh, through some of his writings uh, online and some of the uh, podcasts that he's hosted, um, he, ha in his, uh, you know, research into neurosurgery and, and in particular into epilepsy, he's discovered some very interesting things that, again, point strongly toward a um, duality, that there is a, a brain and a mind, that it, and it can't be one or the other. So I think that's a great place to start to keep it not, um, you know, keep it grounded and keep it kind of out of the esoteric, which philosophy of mind can get kind of <laughs> really, uh, really dense. Even, you know, I've read some stuff. I'm like, I don't even know what you just said. So, um, but I like this approach. Um, and he gives several examples. I'm going to try to, you know, speed through them because they're a little lengthy, but I'll, I'll do my best to, to sum them up. Um, in the 1960s, there was a uh, surgeon, neurosurgeon named Roger Sperry, who did a series of studies on patients who had split brain operations. Now, these patients had severe epilepsy. And what would happen is an epileptic focus would begin in one of the hemispheres of the brain, and it would travel across the you know, fun, uh, fiber bundle, the corpus callosum, into the other hemisphere, and then cause a generalized seizure. So it was recognized by surgeons in the mid-20th century that if you cut this fiber bundle in two, you could prevent the seizures, seizures from becoming generalized. So the patients after the surgery did have fewer seizures, but they weren't much different than before, which really caught Sperry's attention. He thought, well, wait a minute, don't they effectively have two brains now, or at least two halves of a brain that are separated? But they weren't really any different, um, so much so that when he studied them carefully he did notice some subtle differences in like perception and other things like that that ended up winning him the nobel prize uh, his thought was gosh the, and ignores as well is that if you had that kind of um you know dramatic thing happen to your brain you would think if we were just brains it would severely negatively affect us and he said it really didn't so that was the first uh, example I, th I i think is really pretty cool uh, the second one is uh, the experiments by Dr. Wilder Penfield, who was also a neurosurgeon who was 
a pioneer of epilepsy neurosurgery uh, between the 30s and the 60s, so for a good 30 years or so. He was the first neurosurgeon to systematically operate on the human brain when people were awake. So he did this to identify the focus of their seizures and to remove the focus so the seizures would stop. And he operated about a thousand patients and recorded all of his notes very carefully. And when he started his career, he was a strict materialist. He was a total naturalist. He believed that the mind was a result of the activity of the brain. But by the end of the career of his career, he was a passionate dualist. Uh, he believed in both mind and brain. And several reasons were for this. He said the, there were aspects of the patient's mind that he couldn't affect. No matter what he was doing to the brain, he couldn't uh, change certain things. But he could elicit memories. He could make a muscle move or even experience a sensation, but he couldn't change their consciousness, their intellect, or even their sense of self. There was a fundamental core that no matter what he did when he was uh, experimenting on their brains while they were awake, they remained the same. And then this other interesting point, I think is really cool, his observation is, why are there no intellectual seizures? Usually when people go into an epileptic seizure, it's usually a muscle spasm. And sometimes they're so strong that they're rendered unconscious. But he said, how come they don't start working on math problems uncontrollably or contemplating concepts like justice or mercy, something like that? There are no quote-unquote intellectual seizures. Sorry about that. <laughs> he concluded that this intellect is really not in the brain because, as he, as he said, as I operated on these thousands of people, I couldn't change these things. So, there, so when, yeah. you, when, when you're talking about... Of the, the brain mind split. Mm -hmm. Basically, what you're talking about is the brain being purely the physical organ right. that has uh, chemical processes and electro currents and right. things that are happening at a material level. And then, uh, what, what some of these, uh, you know, what you're explaining the history of mm -hmm. is they were kind of finding that actually there seems to be something more to the, to the human experience of consciousness. Right that is outside of the pure physical. Mm -hmm. So of course, the, the physical nature of the brain, everything that's happening in the brain, the chemicals, the, the electricity, the mm -hmm. neurons, all that, right. that, that all affects mm -hmm. conscious experience. Right. But a naturalist would say that's all there is to conscious experience right. and somehow has to explain the totality of consciousness right. and mind and, and everything. And you're saying that, that, that basically, uh, even uh, you know, a long time ago, relatively speaking, they were finding that, that that's difficult to actually prove that. Right, right. And uh, this final example, I think, is one that is probably going to be more familiar with people um, because it is actually used by uh, naturalists, materialists, uh, etc., to show that we do not have either consciousness or free will, probably free will more so. Um, it's the work by uh, a neuroscientist called Benjamin Leibett. He was a researcher in the physiology department at the University of California, and he was fascinated by the correlation in time between thought and brain activity. He performed a whole series of experiments by asking people who were hooked up to electrodes to monitor their brain activity to think of making a decision to do something, say, press a button. And he wanted to see what the duration between making the decision and the first sign of brain activity was. So what he found was is that um, when they decided to press a button, there was about you know, half of a second of brain activity before they decided because there was a clock and he was told um, 
you know, he told the, the patients, hey, note what time it is on this, you know, clock that has second hands and all that. Um, that what, when you made that decision, what time was it? And then he would monitor their brain activity. And there seemed to be brain activity before they made the decision to press the button. So what naturalists would claim is that, see, there's something going on in the brain even before you make a decision. So we're determined and you have really no say in it. Well, Leibitz, being a good scientist, said, hang on, that's probably, you know, a good uh, conclusion. However, let's keep going and let's do something different. He said, now what he wanted his patients to do was make a decision to press the button and then change their minds to not press the button. And let's see what happens. He said that in this case, that there was this thing that he called the readiness potential. It, it appeared again before when they made their decision. But then when they made the decision to not press the button, nothing happened. No brain activity, no, no spike, no readiness potential, nothing happened. And he tried this over and over again and with different people. And so what he decided to, to conclude from this uh, is that, well, it might not prove the existence of free will, but it definitely proves the existence of free won't as he put it. Interesting. And what he said, what he saw going on in the brain with these experiments is that we are bombarded with what are probably uh, could be called preconscious or unconscious motives. Mm -hmm. We are freely capable of deciding whether to comply with them or not. The decision not to comply with them is not material. He also made the very interesting observation that free won't is kind of a parallel concept to what you might find in say Christianity and the ideas of original sin that in a sense, we have motives beyond our control. We can't stop the motives, but we can stop ourselves from doing them. Mm. So those examples right there start down this, this, at least scientifically, how can we think about this mind-brain problem uh, that we have? Is it just the brain? Well, if it is, then how do you explain these situations? They're, they're scientifically testable and have been over and over again, and yet, it seems to discredit, not um, credit, the naturalistic worldview. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the, one of the, like an example of this would be you could you could like you're saying, set up tests and show that when you make computations and you make decisions that there are different parts of your brain that are at work mm -hmm. and there's different you know electro currents and there's mm -hmm. different chemicals happening. And there is a physical, material nature to us, right? right? I mean, right. Christians don't claim that we're immaterial. Right. We, we understand that, right. that we're material. Mm -hmm. But there are things, and I think what you're getting into with free will is good, because there are things like intent mm -hmm. that they really have not been able to explain right. as, a, as a causal uh, contingency mm -hmm. uh, physically. Right. And so, like you're saying, the, the intent to press a button or to not press a button mm -hmm. or whatever, something about that is actually beyond whatever we're able to measure right now right. In, in terms of like just pure physical materialist um, brain function. Right. One, one of the things I think mm -hmm. is important for people to just kind of think about is one way that I've seen the materialist worldview describe us as humans is it just says that your brain's a computer right your brain is a is a computer mm -hmm. that is computing at all times right and actually a computer mm -hmm. 
is an invention of of a human brain. It was intelligently <laughs> designed. So we created computers, not right. the other way around. We Correct. created computers to be able to do human-like computations right. at a different level. Right. But what makes a you know what what makes a human brain a human brain is because it can and does exactly what a computer cannot do. Correct. And that has to do with consciousness, will, intention, mm -hmm. agency. Right. You know, all of these these concepts that mm -hmm. are actually very intuitive to everybody. Right. Like, I think people would be surprised to know that the common naturalistic scientific understanding of our nature is that we don't have free will. Right. People tend to think of that as like a hyper-Calvinist. Right. You know, hyper-religious, weird sect right. of Christianity that says God's so sovereign that we don't have free will. But it Correct. is actually the current atheistic mm. oh, yeah. non-theistic scientific view mm -hmm. of the human experience yes. so so what do these people these scientists mean when they say we don't have free will right it, it means that because of the interactions of chemicals since the beginning of time and then into our you know uh, development our evolution so to speak um, that it's just a series of chemical reactions and that depending on what combination of chemicals that we have some have more some have less uh, some have you know some damage in dna some don't um, this is determine you know it ends up determining who we are and what we like what we don't like and what we do and our propensities to do one thing or another so so much so that we may think we're making choices but it's really just our chemicals uh, reacting and the either lack thereof or too many of one or damage to some that ends up making us be the way we are. And so the, they, they try to negate this whole, we actually have an actual choice when we come against these things. They're like, no, not really. It may seem that way, but really what's happening is all this interaction in your, in your body, in your brain. Yeah, so, so the way that we tend to think about choice is actually a supernatural mm -hmm. understanding. Like right. the, the way that we intuit choice and will and agency. Right. And so what materialism has to do because of its presuppositions is explain that seemingly mm -hmm. uh, supernatural phenomenon right. by natural means. Mm -hmm. And so what they would say is, uh, let's say that you had a banana in front of you mm -hmm. and you have an apple in front of you right? and you can only choose one and it's going to feel to you like you have a choice. Right. You can either pick one or the other. Right. But whichever one you pick mm -hmm. is was actually physically determined. Correct. Predetermined, really. Yes. Because it doesn't have to do with some esoteric concept like will or desire. Right. right. Or any of these classical things that we use to understand our conscious experience. It actually has to do with what is written into your DNA and what's right. happening chemically within you at the time. Correct. And so, yeah, you can say that's free will. Uh -huh. You can say you have a choice. Right. But according to the the materialist mm -hmm. doctrine of how the world is it, it, it was all physically right determined and therefore predetermined right right and i'm glad you brought up the whole um computer analogy to the brain because i've done a lot of reading on this and and um, thinking about it and and it's it's actually a category mistake our brain is nothing like a computer um, there's a brand new book called non-computable you by robert j marks he is a uh, Christian, but he's also a computer theorist and information theorist. Uh, he's big on artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence. And yes, there is a difference. You'll have to get his book to find out what those differences are. Um, but he has, uh, you know, really argued well 
I think, to show that what we do and how computers are, like we're not going to be able to upload ourselves into a computer like the people at Google think. Um, there, there's a whole uh, raft of, of people out, out there that say the future is artificial intelligence and we're going to shed our physical bodies so we don't have any more death, pain, suffering, illness, and we're going to upload it into a computer or into a robot or Android or whatever your option you know, is at the time, and that um, you'll still be you. And Marx argues, no, that's, that's not possible. Um, there are too many uh, factors that how we think and how we process information is nothing like a computer. It's, it, there is um, no real correlation at all. And he says, don't worry, AI is not going to take over. We're not going to have, you know, um, robot overlords anytime, you know, soon. He, he's, he says that they're only as smart as the programmers program them, and they can only do so much, but they will never understand what they're doing. Like, they can do 2 plus 2 equals 4, but they don't understand the concepts of numbers. Well, the, in, in, in the, you know, really, science, science as a worldview mm -hmm. has no working definition of something like consciousness. Right. So how could it recreate consciousness artificially? Right. And what I mean by that is actually the, the current really like, I think, the most accepted theory of consciousness and will and decision making mm -hmm. that exists right now is basically, it's called elim eliminativism, which okay. is basically mm -hmm. that it doesn't exist. Right. It's an illusion. Right. Your consciousness is an illusion. So uh, the new atheists, the, the philosopher of the mm -hmm. group, if you will, is Daniel Dennett. Correct. And he has a book called uh, "From From Bacteria to Bach." Uh, right. Mm -hmm. And uh, his his what he's trying to do is explain something like consciousness through the theory of evolution through right. materialism. Right. right. That right. that that uh, all of the things that you and I talk about that feel intuitively esoteric to us mm -hmm. consciousness will mm -hmm. experience th those are actually it's all physical. Right. It's all encoded in you. Mm -hmm. It's all just the way that we experience the physical things uh, that happen to us and in, in, in the reactions that are going on in our body. And so consciousness is an illusion. Right. So um, this is, you know, the working theory mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of consciousness in right. terms of scientific naturalism. Right. David Bentley Hart says in, in an article where he reviews this book, <laughs> He's very he's very hard on Daniel Dennett. Yes, and, and these as guys. he should be. He, he's not. He's not. Uh, I would probably like to think I would be kinder to them. Right. But he says that uh, one need not even mention that to suffer an illusion requires consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He says to even have to say that right. feels like I'm talking to a child. Right. So the working theory mm -hmm. is that. Our consciousness is an illusion. Right. But to suffer an illusion, one would have to be conscious. Right. And then from that, <laughs> I would, I would, I would add, I'd say, uh, you know, from, you know, philosophically speaking, I would say, how do you know it's an illusion? Wouldn't you have to be outside of yourself to see that it's an illusion? Because if you're in the illusion, you're being deluded. You don't know. I, it and this seems is like there's a, a, a real problem there. And this is kind of what we've been talking about with some of this other stuff too. And this is, I don't, I really don't think this is me making straw man arguments. Right. I think that the reason is because it has to be assumed according to the worldview. Sure. 
if there can be no such thing as something supernatural, then it has to be natural. Right. So what is consciousness? What mm-hmm. What is desire? What right. is will? What is intent? It has to be physical right. Right. because, you know, naturalism could also be called physicalism. Mm-hmm. All that is 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 what is exists already in nature. Right. And so to explain something like consciousness, even if you come to what I would consider to be a silly conclusion mm-hmm. that would say that it's all an illusion, it's because you have to according to your own assumptions. Right. You can't grant what would make all of this intelligible, mm-hmm. which is that you know something like consciousness and experience is something beyond. Right. At least in its totality. Mm-hmm. Not to say it's not affected by physicality. Right. But in its totality, it's something beyond the mere physical. Mm-hmm. And the same thing I would say is true of will, free right. will. Right. So, um, so do, you, do you have anything else to add in terms of you know consciousness, free will, the theory of the mind? Yeah, there's just one last thing, and then we can uh, move on to morality. Um, then there's a philosophical argument. So I kind of like to have both, you know, philosophy and science, if I can, in, in a lot of these things, or uh, from different angles to look at these problems. And there's a really pretty cool philosophical argument by uh, philosopher Franz Brentano, who lived from 1838 to 1917. And his question was, so what is it that is unique about the mind that makes it different from matter? So if there is a, a thing called mind and different from the brain, um, what is it that makes something mental? Well, he came up with intentionality, the ability of something to be about something else. Meaning if you're thinking about going on a vacation, but you haven't been there yet and you can imagine what it's going to be like, then you're intentionally thinking about something else that's not you. Mm. For him, he felt like a brain cannot be about something, just like a table cannot be about something. There's no intentionality there. So for us to be intentional, to say, I'm planning on when I go home, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, you know, planning out the rest of your day, let alone a, you know, vacation. But you're, you can plan these things out. You can think about them. He feels like that there's something there that if we were just a brain, just naturalistically, we could not have this sort of intentionality. And I think that's a pretty good argument. That's, I think that's, that's a great argument. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of exactly what we're talking about. And so I think what usually happens is because it has to be something physical in the brain, mm-hmm. the answer to that question that you'll get from that worldview is that something's happening in the brain that does that. Right. Because there's a level of abstraction that we live with, that we're capable of, mm-hmm. that really, in terms of what we've discovered so far, cannot be described merely as a physical phenomenon. Right. But because it couldn't possibly be something else, according mm-hmm. to the parameters of the worldview, mm-hmm. they basically say, well, we haven't really discovered it yet. Right. But it is something physical. Right. And th- that's one of those things where, like, uh, you know, Perhaps mm-hmm. we will continue to discover physical things that sure. lead us down that road. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that's a more ridiculous answer than to believe that it's something beyond the natural. Exactly. To say it's not, but it's something we haven't discovered yet and that we don't right. know. And to be honest with you, mm-hmm. that our best and brightest thinkers have only been able to say it's all illusory. Right. I mean, again, mm-hmm. the question is what's reasonable and what's not. To me, that's not a reasonable way to conceive of consciousness, right. free will, mm-hmm. and the human experience. But what right. I, as a, as a theist, as mm-hmm. a Christian theist, mm-hmm. believe, mm-hmm. 
makes a lot more sense right and seems to pass those tests of reasonability and adequacy and and you know better than right than what they're proclaiming exactly exactly um so then something that that really connects to something like free will is morality mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a big question that every single worldview has to answer is how then should we act right what then should we do right because we've been talking about existence mm-hmm. and experience but mm-hmm. not only do we exist and not only do we experience but we actually have to move in this world and we have to do things right and so the thing that stitches all societies together at all times, no matter what, is what should we do? Right. What should we not do? Correct. How ought we to live? Right. And so what are some of the questions that come along with this? Mm-hmm. And how is this, like, how, do, how does the naturalistic perspective try to answer this versus something like, you know, a, a Christian perspective or something? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, obviously, as we're going along, um, even going back to last episode and the origin of the universe and the fine-tuning of it and then the origin of life and then the fine-tuning of life they're all linked together and then when we get to earth and we see us and we try to understand us obviously our consciousness and then the implication of free will um, really matter in trying to understand all of this and then like you said with morality and how do we behave and treat each other and should we even bother Um, because if we're determined as a lot of naturalists will say that we are we you know we're, we've been determined from the beginning of the universe because of all the chemical reactions that happen and we you know come down to where we're at on earth and we find ourselves in existence and so if we're just determined then is there really anything such as a an objective moral set of truths that we can actually all claim to say that's wrong this is good that's not the, and all that. And they would say no, that not really. Well, before, before we get mm-hmm. into like that objective sure. morality and what stands behind that, according to a deterministic uh, naturalism, mm. can one even make moral decisions? I see, yes. Um, uh, well, it depends on how you define it. Yeah. I think that's really the problem because you have people like Sam Harris in his book, The Moral Landscape. Uh, Donald Pfaff in The Altruistic Brain and even Michael Shermer in The Moral Arc, they all try to argue for some sort of morality that we can make decisions, but they end up kind of changing the the terms good and bad. Um, And they end up using good and bad rather than, you know, evil or whatever, Mm because that has too much of a moral uh, connotation. Like, say, take Sam Harris. Most of his uh, stuff in Moral Landscape is um, a good decision as opposed to a bad decision, meaning more like a bad chess move. Well, that wasn't a strategic chess move, so that wasn't a good move. Instead of it actually being a moral uh, choice, as we historically understand morality, he will say that something along the lines of whatever is good for uh, our flourishing, human flourishing, whatever that is, meaning I guess just not being in pain, not suffering, Uh, is something that then we should embrace. But there's all sorts of problems because then how do you explain somebody who, say, a sociopath? If he's been determined to be that way, then we can't say that his sociopathic tendencies are wrong. The fact that he just wants to hurt somebody or even kill somebody because he just wants to, 
we can't actually say that's wrong on this theory because he's just been determined. It's that encoded way. into his, his right. DNA physically. Right. And and that that would be so. So I've heard people like Sam Harris. And I, don't, I don't I don't actually know if it's him or if it's that just that school of thought. And mm-hmm. what they basically get to is they say there is no real moral decisions because of this predetermined right. nature that we have. But you should live as if there is. Correct. Now. Like this is actually where some of this stuff starts to anger me. Yes, <laughs> because th- there's a there's a Jerry Seinfeld bit in his mm-hmm. his last Netflix special where he says he says uh, when somebody tells him it is what it is, mm-hmm. he's like, you just said nothing. <laughs> That's right. Like you might as well have just blown hot air into my face. Right. Uh, you did not need to waste my time mm-hmm. by making me listen to you say something that is actually nothing. Right. And. To me, when somebody who's trying to explain morality Mm -hmm. says something along the lines of, well, there is no morality because there's no there's no ability to make moral decisions Mm -hmm. because it's all encoded into us. But you should live as if there is. It's like, well, you literally just wasted my time. Yes. That doesn't mean anything. No, it doesn't. The the same would be of consciousness. There's Mm -hmm. no such thing as consciousness. It's an illusion. But you have to live as if there is because, I mean, what else are you going to do? Right, right. It's like, why did I come to your talk? Right. Why did I read your book? Yes. Like, that that (laughs) is nothing. Yes. You just said nothing to me. Mm -hmm, We mm -hmm. we didn't need to go through all of that. Right. Um, And so in terms of morality, uh, okay, then if, let's just say, you get past that, Mm -hmm. which they really can't because it's it's part of what their their worldview requires. But let's just say, okay, then let's get to the point where let's just say you can make moral decisions Mm -hmm. somehow. Mm -hmm. What is right? What is wrong? Mm -hmm. What is good? What is evil? And how is that determined? Uh, Right. Uh, Well, I mean, there's a whole series of um, attempts throughout history. I even developed a kind of a mini class that probably run about an hour and a half on the history of moral thought. And it's an overview. It's not everybody, but it's a lot of the big ones. And I've kind of included it here, but I've really trimmed it down. Um, But, you know, before that, real quick, just wanted to just point out that it's not that cut and dry for a lot of these atheistic, naturalistic philosophers who are trying to um, come up with understanding morality a lot of them are very confused and they don't know what to do very confused yeah so like kai nielsen was a uh, canadian philosopher who unfortunately died recently um he said at one point he says we have not been able to show that reason requires of us reason meaning just you know our intellect or even science that we have a moral point of view or that really rational persons who have been unhoodwinked by myth or ideology need not as a result of their belief become individual egoist or classical amoralist reason doesn't decide here the picture i've painted for you is not a pleasant one reflection on this actually depresses me pure practical reason even with a good knowledge of the facts will not take you to morality so he just he was like so, so I, I can't just come to a uh, a you know a logical conclusion of what is a good moral so so here, here, because I, I want to go back to this. We mm-hmm. talked about this a couple episodes ago, mm-hmm. where you you made the point, and and that this is good, and I brought this into the class because I think it's important mm-hmm. that to be it, to have this worldview mm-hmm. does not necessarily make one a moral monster, right? Who doesn't care about right and wrong. In fact, right. when you listen to Sam Harris mm-hmm. and when you listen to Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, like they're actually like like Pharisaical right. in their morality. Oh yeah. I mean, part of what they're doing is they think religion leads to bad morality. Right. 
And so regardless of the fact that they don't actually believe in moral choices when you really come down to like the right. biology of it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they think that religion is bad, so we need to get away from that, which means right. that they think that there are things that we should do. And they actually oh, yeah. think that, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, someone like Christopher Hitchens was, mm-hmm. was an incredibly outspoken voice in terms of something like war and colonialism right. and imperialism, saying that those things are bad. And so... Um, it's not that they don't care about right and wrong. Mm-hmm, there mm-hmm. are people like that. Oh, yeah. Peter Singer right. is a very famous yep. uh, current philosopher. Uh, uh, and um, really, I mean, you get into things like eugenics right. with people like that. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, in the history, you have people like Nietzsche right. who said, like, all the stuff Christianity says about, like, human rights and stuff, like, get rid of that mm-hmm, since mm-hmm. Christianity is not true. Right. And have this kind of will to power thing, which can get... Right. You know, very violent and destructive. But that's not right. The, the, your average person walking around the street who doesn't believe in God. Right. Does believe in morality. Absolutely. So the question is, so what is their framework? Right. What is the basis? What is the rationale for their, um, yeah, for their moral views? It's not that they're immoral. It's just that they have different morality than what uh, comes from the Bible, what, what we learn from. Um, the Judeo-Christian heritage. So even like Bertrand Russell said, he was the 20th century uh, atheistic philosopher who, he was an outspoken critic of uh, society and denouncing war and the restrictions on sexual freedom, but he even admitted that he could not live as though ethical values were simply a matter of personal taste. And he found his own views incredible, and he, he said, I just don't know the solution. And yet he, so he had that tension he knew certain things were wrong, according to him, for certain reasons, but he couldn't live as though ethical values were simply a matter of personal taste. He just couldn't. Yeah, one can't. Yeah, and you can't. In, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I kind of look at, at, at attempts throughout history. I think it's really interesting because they still affect us today. So, again, like I said, I have this whole, you know, history of moral thought, so I'm going to try to distill a few of these concepts down really quickly. Um, and some of these are scientific attempts which is really fascinating that they try to rationalistically as much as they possibly could um, do what Kai Nielsen and others said that couldn't be done. You know, they can't get there, but they've tried for centuries. Uh, Descartes was one of the first ones. Uh, René Descartes, French philosopher, he, um, you know, was the first to try to apply the scientific method to philosophy, i.e. rationalism, but he never fully got around to applying it to ethics, but he implied that it could be. So this laid the foundation for other philosophers to yeah. future endeavors. And he wasn't a strict materialist either. That was no, no, he was a Christian, that. and yeah. that was the thing yeah. is that he, but he f- wanted so much for science to be this, you know, this great thing, and that other people then took that concept up and right, who right. weren't Christians and then ran with it. Um, like Hume, David Hume, he tried to ground our morality in our feelings, and that there really isn't such thing as. Uh, evil it's just you know like say a murder happens and he said well what do we see we just see you know a knife or a gun um you know a slash some blood and a scream and then a body falling is we just see things cause and effect right yeah and yet we impose uh morality on it and on the perpetrator a judgment of good or bad right good or evil so he feels like that that's totally subjective and that uh, everything else should just be based on um and that they are based on our feelings and that the, that's okay, but that it's not, um, that what we see are just, you know, are just things. Uh, and then we, our feelings then impose them on that. And so he feels like, yeah, they just come from our feelings. It's whatever, 
seems right to you, then that's right, and whatever's wrong is wrong to you. So, but how do you, how do you construct a society that way? You, right. There's no way to do that. Um, then you've got John Stuart Mill. He um, he uses the one who created utilitarianism, which is uh, the criterion for good and evil is whatever causes the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, and that's the greatest good. Well, there's problems with that because somebody like an egoist might say, why should they even be concerned with anyone else's happiness? You know, the utilitarian may answer that his acts affect other people, and the egoist may respond, well, yeah, I know that, but why do I care? Uh, why should an altruist, if that doesn't make me, you know, why should I be an altruist if that doesn't make me happy? So, like, I, I um, like to reference at this point a guy named David Wood. He is a Christian apologist, uh, but he has been diagnosed as a sociopath. And he actually um, uh, tried to murder his father. And he spent some time in jail. And he actually then did become a Christian. And um, he is such that, um, you know, he has no sense of right or wrong in the sense of, you know, true morality in the sense of, you know, he's kind of an egoist. Um, but what he decided was, is that as he looked into the, the, you know, the Christian faith and saw a lot of the, the problems that he had with his own worldview, um, that he could give his life over to Jesus and still obey and follow what Jesus wanted him to do and loving people and being selfless, even though that was not on his radar at all. So there is right there, I think, a pretty good example of you have free will yeah. and that what is morality is, yes, it, 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 in some ways I know some people say, well, morality is just what we make up. But that seems to be the problem from day one of the fall. Back in, you know, when we look in, ge in the Genesis account, what we see is um, we wanted to decide what was right and wrong. And God's saying, but I'm here to help you, you know, differentiate what is between right and wrong. And you doing it on your own is going to lead to some really difficult things. And so I would say, sure, we create right and wrong. And that doesn't mean that that's all that there is. God has this right or wrong in mind that we were created to follow in certain ways so that we're not getting harmed. And so an example like that says, you know, even if you are a complete egoist and say, why, do I, why should I care? Uh, Jesus is like, look, I, I love you and this is how I want you to yeah. act. So I think that yeah. that's a, a kind of a, a, a good example to kind of so realize. So to because because I want to I want to uh, make this practical and make sure that people understand what we're not necessarily accusing mm. people of mm -hmm. um, to ask the question good like why like why is there good and evil which we'll ask here in a second mm -hmm. but to ask the question are there good are there things I ought to do and things I ought not to right, right. you you are actually positing mm -hmm. an objective idea of good and evil right you're you're positing a moral code sure. And yes, you could say that the moral code differs and, and you can have your reasonings behind that. But the existence of something good as mm -hmm. such mm -hmm. and something evil as such, there must be some kind of objective morality behind that. And so the question right. is what stands behind that. Mm -hmm. What sure. The answer that, that you get, and, and you know, a lot of this stuff is like, you know, we don't always just walk around and think this deeply about stuff and right. try to make sure that everything we have coheres right. to everything else that we think and all that. Right, right. But one of the, the issues that, that I see is that usually what happens is that people just haven't chased what they 
intuitively think mm-hmm. down the rabbit trail far enough right. to see that it eventually breaks down. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean by that is that I think most people, if you ask them why should why like why is this good or bad like why shouldn't i harm somebody right they would say something along the lines of uh it's either Mm self-evident like of course you shouldn't right and you know the argument against that would be well i mean what's self-evident today right was certainly not Mm self-evident in sparta right in terms of what you would do with a disabled child or something like that right so it's not necessarily human nature right so what is it socialization right does that make it right or wrong right um it's not self-evident actually right a lot of these decisions are Mm -hmm. not Mm self-evident the other thing that they'll Mm -hmm. say is i would say like some kind of crude version of utilitarianism right not that they're weighing the best possible outcome for the most amount of people Mm -hmm. but that they're saying i don't hit that person uh, you know, I don't go up and punch that person because I don't want that to be something that might happen to me. So we need to set up a society where we don't just go around punching each other. Right. For, for our flourishing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that does actually work in terms of a simple, silly example like should you randomly punch somebody. Right. But it doesn't work in terms of something like what do you do with the poor mm-hmm. and the destitute right. and the disabled or something like that. Right. Because you could definitely make a utilitarian argument mm-hmm. to get rid of the those those people that don't contribute to right. whatever you understand the good of society to be. Right. And so you think about something like Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a utilitarian understanding behind right. the atrocities that they committed. Right. Um, you think about something like Soviet Russia. Mm-hmm. There was a utilitarianism, a greater good right. that they were pursuing, that they thought they were pursuing behind the extermination of 20 million people, right. 30 million people, whatever right. it was. Right. And so that utilitarian thing, like it's one of those things that I don't think you want to base your morality upon that because mm-hmm. because the, the danger of that is pretty significant. And historically speaking, it's led to the greatest mass murders in yes. history of mankind right yeah i mean utilitarian basically isn't really an ethics at all there's no principles or laws duties or obligations just all values are reduced to facts and utility yeah i'm right and so it doesn't it sounds good on the surface you know we want to try to do the best for as many people as possible but man it ends up who determines what's the best and for what people i mean we should be trying to do good to all people well, uh, it, it, tur- we it turns into a monstro. It turns yeah. monstrous mm-hmm. because, uh, in in order to live in a utilitarian way, mm-hmm. people have to become means to an end rather right. than an end in and of themselves. Right. So, like, but you know, this is like, I mean, mm-hmm. okay, think about the fact that in our corporate structures we have something called human resources. Right. That mm-hmm. makes humans mm-hmm. a resource. Right. <laughs> and so, how you yeah. treat your employees. Mm-hmm is is different if they're a resource to your company right right now the same is true of something much different than that how do you treat the life of somebody Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. Uh, who who may not contribute to your society for most Mm -hmm. of human history because of utilitarian decision making right somebody who was super Mm anti-social you would just take them to the public square and kill them right because they're not contributing positively to your society right you actually may not want that person to reproduce right because of whatever genetic thing is making them like that if it is indeed genetics right 
And so for most of, I mean, until very recently, mm-hmm. it wasn't just that there was a death penalty. It was that there was a death penalty because there's usefulness to something like that. Mm-hmm. So today, and, and as, as Christians, mm-hmm. you know, I, I like, my personal disposition on that is to be against the death penalty. Right. Um, even in, in uh, you know, brutal mm-hmm. things. That's not a utilitarian decision Mm-mm. on my part. Right. And if as a society we determine that, that mm-hmm. would not be because of utili- the utilitarian nature right. of its outcome. Right. And so th- it's not, it, 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 it not only is it not a good way to determine things, and not only is it way more subjective than we think, but mm-hmm. it actually has the ability and in history has turned into the, the greatest monstrosities of the destruction of life mm. that, has, that has ever happened. Right. And so to say, well, we're going to base our decisions on what's useful mm-hmm. is actually a very, very dangerous thing to right. build your ethics upon. Right. So then... So th- yeah, so then let, let, let's keep going. Mm-hmm. So, so that's mm-hmm. kind of some of the non-theistic ideas behind right. what's good and bad, good and evil. Right. Yeah, I think one last example is uh, that I, I bring up only because I've heard it brought up in a lot of question and answer sessions from apologists when they go to universities. And uh, as being the answer for um, why don't we do this, you know, for our morality. And it's um, by Immanuel Kant, who was... Um, a Christian, and he was a philosopher, German philosopher, and he, he developed this, this uh, moral principle called the categorical imperative, which is basically a variation on the golden rule, but without reference to God. He was trying to make it, in, you know, which is interesting, you know, being a, a Christian, he still wanted to try to scientifically or rationalistic, you know, uh, with rationalistic uh, means, uh, how can we arrive at some sort of morality without referencing to God and in some ways he wanted to uh, give glory to God I'm not sure how that worked but anyway he the the biggest problems with uh, the categorical imperative is that well it doesn't tell you what to do or what not to do it simply tells you that being good is being logically consistent Uh, Kant thinks you can deduce all the content from the form of the categorical imperative but you can't I'm so sorry I'm I'm ashamed I made that joke um (laughs) So what he ends up doing, I couldn't resist, uh, Kant makes duty the only moral motive. So what you should do is your duty. Mm. And he doesn't really talk about love. So my thought is, all right, hang on. If I um, answer my wife when she says, so why have you been faithful to me for nearly 30 years of marriage? Which is the better answer? It's my duty or because I love you? Hmm. So what's so if if I follow Kant's uh, advice here, that's not really going to work in reality. Um, you know, should I be faithful to persons or to principles? Do we love persons because we love principles most, and that our principles tell us to love people, or do we love principles because we love persons the most? So we're already getting into some you know fuzzy. How do you determine what the duty is? Right. And, and what about the fact that that's changed over time? Mm-hmm. What one would consider their duty in 1300, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in uh, Japan right. is very different than what you and I would consider our duty today. Exactly. Is that because duty is subjective? Like, how do you determine that? Yeah. Right. And, and so if the right is what everyone should do, as Kant says, then making exceptions for yourself is always wrong. 
But what about making exceptions for yourself in the opposite direction? Not to do wrong, but to do more than your duty. How could Kant explain the moral worth of heroic actions? We generally call these actions beyond the call of duty. Is it our duty to go beyond the call of duty? Well, it seems like a contradiction, right? Um, But if it's not our duty, then according to Kant, it has no moral worth. So logically, Kant must be either... Uh, must either deny that heroism has any moral worth or say that it's everyone's moral duty to be a hero and go beyond the call of duty, which is not only logically contradictory, but also just really impossibly burdensome, Mm. you know? So those are the attempts that I think people have tried, even some Christians who have attempted to try to ground morality in something other than God. And what I mean by that is not just in God, because uh, this comes up in a uh, philosophical uh, conundrum that people put forth called the Euthyphro Dilemma. We're going back to Plato again. Um, Euthyphro was a character that Plato had created and was using as one of his writings. And in that uh, writing, the, the, the thought or the thing is that is something good because God wills it? Or does God will something because it's good? And in, actually in the actual argument, it's the God's because they didn't believe in just one God, it was the plural. So there's your first uh, problem with that argument. So um, it, it doesn't really apply when we're talking about lowercase g gods um, as opposed to the Judeo-Christian God, because the way I, I look at it, and this is, this is still being used as um, a, a, a valid argument by atheists. One, I actually even emailed when her book came out and she used this, I emailed her and I said, here's the problems with it. And she wrote back and basically just said that um, I didn't really understand it. And I'm like, well, actually I do understand it, but I think you're just kind of hand waving away. I, I, I was really surprised by the response I got um, because the, the problem here is they say, is something good just because God wills it? Meaning if God just wills something to be good, then what's him to change his mind and arbitrarily um, make something that was bad, good and good, bad. And, And that would work back in, say, Plato's day when it was lowercase g, the gods. Or does God will something because it is good? Well, the problem there is that, well, then is that something outside of God? And then what is that that God is referring to? So this dilemma supposedly is supposed to say it it can't come from God because you end up with, uh, you know, this absurd uh, contradiction here. And both choices are bad. Well, it's neither choice, really. And it's really a misunderstanding of the first option. It's God wills something because he is good, not just because it is good, but because of his very nature. He is incapable of lying. Um, and if he is, you know, loving and just and merciful and wise, then clearly what he would say is good is good. It's, it actually speaks it into existence rather than just arbitrarily yeah. declaring it. So. The, the basis of morality, what we're saying here is, is that it's in God's character, not just because God says so. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the God of the Christian faith is immutable, which means he doesn't change, mm-hmm. and impassable, which means he's not capricious. <laughs> right. So, the, you know, the, the Roman and the Greek gods were, mm-hmm. were sort of like, just like greater humans in the sense that right. they had human emotions and, oh, yeah. you know, they... Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't the source of all good. They were, you know, yeah, I think capricious is the best word to say it. They right. would change. Mm-hmm. They were sort of uh, mm-hmm. had to be pleased, all of that. The, 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 
God that stands behind the Christian moral code, like you said, is good. Mm-hmm. That's a theological concept called divine simplicity, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that it is simply his nature. Right. He doesn't just do good. Right. He doesn't believe the good. Right. God is good. Right. His attributes are his essence, uh, essentially. Right. Right. And so, like, to me, like, again, think about the, the question we've been asking the whole time. It's mm-hmm. not, we're not sitting here trying to prove. Right. That Christianity's right, right and that, you know, some of this, this other worldview is wrong. Right. But the question is, which one's more reasonable to believe? Exactly. When you think about how you experience morality in the world mm-hmm. and evil, right. what's more reasonable? Mm-hmm. That there's something objective? Right. That there's an objective moral law, a right. moral code, and mm-hmm. therefore there's an objective moral law giver that stands behind it. Right. And, and that's not going to change. And it's not, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, based upon the social situation and it's actually like real Mm -hmm. because it's 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 there it's something and something objective is standing behind it Mm -hmm. is that more reasonable in terms of how we experience good and evil right and wrong Mm -hmm. or something like utilitarianism right or something like um uh you know the the self-evident nature Mm -hmm. of something being right and Mm -hmm. wrong Mm -hmm. or subjectivity Right. That it's whatever's right to you is right to you and whatever's right to me is right, right to me. That's actually not nobody actually believes that. Right. Right. Like if you yeah. because like if I was if you told me you believed that mm-hmm. and then I went over and poured water on your head, <laughs> you'd be offended. Right. Because you but I would say, well, that's what's right to me. And you would say, well, that's not what I mean right. when I say that. So. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So morality. Right. Just like the idea of consciousness. Mm hmm. Just like the idea of free will, mm-hmm. just like something like where did the universe come from? Why is it so fine-tuned for life? Why are we so fine-tuned for life? Right. Just like everything we talked about the first couple right. podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, what's a more reasonable mm-hmm. thing to believe? Mm-hmm. And so, like, I do think that in terms of the way that Jay Warner Wallace talks mm-hmm. about cold case detective work, the way that historians right. determine what did or didn't happen. Right. I think that to me, indisputably, the answer to the question like is something like atheistic naturalism mm-hmm. or the historical integrated Christ- Christian worldview right. more reasonable. Mm-hmm. To me, it's indisputable right. that what's more reasonable, mm-hmm. what has better evidence, what has better answers right. is the Christian worldview. Right. And so do I walk around in this world ever feeling intellectually inferior for being a Christian? No. No. Do you? No. No. Do you ever <laughs> do you ever walk around feeling like you don't have reasons to believe what you believe? Absolutely not. Do you ever feel like you're mm-hmm. the naive one who has blind faith? No. And and so that's really what all of this has been about. Right. And so um in terms of weighing the evidence, mm-hmm. I, I kind of want to wrap it right there mm-hmm. and say you know, listen to those podcasts. Uh, right. You know, hopefully you're you're in the class. Right. But if you're not, then then you know at least listen to these podcasts and and, and weigh the evidence for yourself and think about the arguments that that Sean and I have made. Mm-hmm. And I I want to end uh, this whole discussion with what I would consider to be more of a pastoral right. question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I- you know, I'm a pastor, and so in pastoral ministry, and I'm sure in your life in the church. Sean, mm-hmm. you've seen this too, that people tend to walk away from the faith not because they've gone through some kind of intellectually rigorous right. deconstruction. Right, right. 
usually deconstruction stems from something emotional, something mm-hmm. that they've experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is like, I, I want to be clear through all of this, that part of being a Christian is believing that we aren't brains on a stick. Right. And we are not just rational. Mm-hmm. That we are emotional right. creatures. Mm-hmm. We're actually spiritual beings who yep. are affected by things that are outside the realm of t- pure naturalism. And so our mm-hmm. experience in the world is important. So people who walk away from the faith based on something like abuse or they've experienced mm-hmm. evil or a Christian has done something to them and then used their faith to kind of back right. it up. I actually think that that, that 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 needs to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. And so we can't deal with that in specificity. But I think what you and I can talk about to wrap this up mm-hmm. is just that whole idea. Yeah. Evil. Right. We say that we worship a good God, mm-hmm. but we are in a world where there is evil. Right. How, how does that, how is that possible? Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, um, why is it sometimes committed by those of us who claim to be united to and transformed by this good God? Yeah. Why does the church commit a trust? You know, yeah. So, so let's let's just kind of wrap with yeah. that question. <laughs> let's end on a light, easy one. Well, yes. yeah, no, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, it's not it's not easy, and um, it, I'm I'm going to do my best to not be overly simplistic. Um, it, it it really hits us the most because this is one of the biggest objections uh, that people bring up that they either leave the faith or they don't come into. Uh, trusting and, and believe in God. So um, I, I think that because like going all the way back to episode one, talking about beliefs matter and uh, how we have beliefs and emotions and they interact with each other all the time, um, this has to have a two-part answer to it. You have to address the mind and you have to address our emotions, the experiential relational aspect. We have to do both. Um, we have to have a good you know, logical framework and understanding of what some of the objections are. So we have good reasons, but we also have to then, um, you know, uh, understand the experiential side of it and how to answer that as well. So I'm going to try to do uh, the best here of understanding how we can look at these two things. Um, You know, unlike other religions, most other religions, uh, Christianity does not try to minimize the reality of pain and suffering. So let's t- say take most of the Eastern traditions. They, they try to put pain and suffering in the category of illusion. So suffering can be overcome through the understanding of its true nature. Evil and pain will fade away as the individual gains enlightenment about the illusory nature of the phenomenal world. Um, you know, a, a famous Tibetan Lama once said, evil and suffering are real only as long as the individual believes them to be real. So the solution to evil and suffering is to change the way we think about them. They will then cease to be real. Well, my response to that is, okay, well, let's get real. Um, I'll tell my story uh, real quick about something that is, um, it, yeah, it's, it's big um, as far as pain and suffering and the problem of evil. The, I'll start with the experiential and then uh, go to the logical and then come back to the experiential again. My wife and I have been married almost 30 years. We have one son who's almost 22. We wanted to have siblings for him. Uh, we had three miscarriages uh, in his early, you know, two, four, and seven-year-old range. And then in 2010, we uh, found ourselves pregnant again, and she uh, made it to the third trimester, and we were going to have another son. 
And in the week of Christmas 2010, he died. Mm. So he was still born on the 23rd of December. My birthday's the 24th of mm. December. And I was talking with the doctor about it, and he said, dude, I don't, I don't understand this. He said, there's nothing wrong with your wife. There was nothing wrong with your son. He just died. We have no clue. And he said, and to make things crazier, this happens almost every year. He goes, I've been in Columbus for 10 years. And almost every year, the week of Christmas, we have at least one stillbirth. He goes, I don't, I don't know what's up with this town. <laughs> so, mm. um, yeah, I have to laugh or I'll, you know, totally cry. Um, it, and it's one of those things of what do you do? What do you make sense of uh, out of that? If you were to tell me the Eastern tradition category of illusion, you know, the pain and suffering, I might punch you in the throat. You know, I mean, it's just, it's not going to go well. I, I don't see how that's livable, how that actually can bring comfort to either me and my wife. It just, it just won't. Um, so there has to be something more than that, because when you, when you say it like this, that's one thing. But when you bring it down to reality, that's a totally different thing. When you actually apply it, it just, it just doesn't work. So... My thought is, all right, let's look at both the intellectual side and the emotional side, because that's who we are. We have a brain, we have thoughts, we can reason through things, but we also have emotions that affect us, and they affect each other. Thoughts, emotions, they're always interacting. Um, and the, the argument seems to go that if God exists, and he's all good, and he's all powerful, then the fact that evil exists, something there doesn't compute something's wrong so either he's not all good or he's not all powerful or that maybe you could say then or evil doesn't really exist which strangely enough atheists don't claim that <laughs> they don't make the, they don't go to that one they say well either he's not yeah. um, all powerful or he's not all good yeah they're actually like i said very moral right uh, in in their uh, hopes why isn't uh, evil an illusion, like the uh, East Eastern pantheists say, um, an option? It's never, yeah. because they want to attack the character of God. Right. Well, the biggest problem I can see here is that we have an incomplete view of God. He's not just all good or just all powerful. He's also wise. He's also loving. Um, he's also merciful. Um, did I say justice? Yeah, he's got justice. Um, all these things, when you factor all of his characteristics in, instead of just making it he's good and powerful, then that kind of changes the whole uh, tenor of the, of the argument. And I think it falls apart um, that that ends up not really being a good objection, you know, to, uh, you know, in an yeah. intellectual way to it. So, um, you know, w we can look at, uh, you know, arguments and things like that and, and look at how things are, are reasoned through, but, you know, I, I think that really when we get right down to it, you know, C.S. Lewis said it the best. He said, so what's the standard you're using to, to determine what is evil? Because he had that problem, and he said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of what a straight line is. Mm. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Mm. So for me... Um, you know, when I, I, I can answer, you know, part of the problem intellectually, there's really not a, a contradiction between the existence of evil and the existence of God. God, um, 
allows evil because he allows our free will to enable us to make free will choices, but those choices have consequences. So like when we chose to disobey God in the garden and um, evil came into the world, sin entered the world through our choice, that was the real consequence of that real choice that we freely chose. God did not make us do that. Um, and we, we weren't determined to make that choice. This is what we chose to do. And the natural consequences of that is all this evil. And so some will say, well, why doesn't God just clean this up and make it go away? Well, because, you know, real choices have real consequences. And he did mm -hmm. uh, fix it. It's just taking longer and it's not the way we want it to be solved. And obviously that is he empathizes with our weakness. He um, has been tempted in every way as we are, um, but he didn't sin. And he became sin, though, on the cross um, by suffering all of the, the, the torture and the, the, you know, the, the pain that he experienced uh, in all the beatings and such, and then the cross itself. And then he did experience separation from the Father. That relational uh, distance that he went through was agonizing. I mean, something we can't even fathom because of the close intimacy that Jesus had with the Father and with the Spirit. So I kind of like to, you know, for my part of this, just wrap up this little thing by just quoting 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17 through 21. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. Mm. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for sharing that, mm -hmm. that, that story. and. And uh, just kind of giving some of your, you know, been intellectual insight into mm -hmm. how an experience of pain and suffering like that, mm -hmm. you know, jives with, with your Christian faith. Mm -hmm. You know, one, one of the, the things that I think people, so I think I made a comment in maybe our first podcast or second podcast. Mm -hmm. where I said that a lot of the criticisms of Christianity are waged against people who are seemingly very ignorant of mm -hmm. the Christian story. Right. <laughs> right. Like they don't know the Bible. Right. So they are criticizing the Bible, mm -hmm. but they don't know how to read it. Right. Like they're not well schooled in it. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things is that Christianity has a very clear and complex um, story as to the origination of evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Christianity believes not only in evil in the terrestrial realm, but it believes in Christianity in, in the spiritual realm. Right. And there's a story called the fall, like mm -hmm. you talked about in the garden, mm -hmm. where there is a human decision to not worship God, right. to not have God be the, the ruler of this kingdom, mm -hmm. and to make ourselves that, and to rebel against him. And in that rebellion, uh, evil and death and destruction come into the world. Right. And throughout the whole story then, there's this really interesting thread of narrative where God continues to choose his images even though we're compromised. Right. So we do commit evil. Mm -hmm. We do not do as God wants us to do. We take 
our powers that we have that mm-hmm. we're supposed to make the world better right and in our sin and brokenness and idolatry we actually do the exact opposite and we make it worse mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and throughout the story god continues to choose us yes he continues to choose us he doesn't get rid of us and create beings who have to love him right he doesn't get rid of us and create a different kind of being he mm-hmm. continues to move with us and in terms of the story of scripture it doesn't tell us why right the the fact that you have free will mm-hmm. in some senses mm-hmm. is uh, antagonistic to what God wants right. in this world. Exactly. Because it's a choice. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the choice is opened up, you might choose the other thing. He wants us to choose to love him and be in relationship with him. He can't force us to be in that relationship. I, I suppose he could. and But we That's would just be after. robots or automatons. So why would that well, yeah. be satisfying to him or to us. And so then he chooses us to the point, like you said, that mm-hmm. he actually becomes one of us yep. and suffers like the depths of that evil himself mm-hmm. in the flesh mm-hmm. on the cross. Um, and then, you know, not only is he raised to new life and invites us into that uh, to, s- to begin, you know, new creation right now, mm-hmm. but he also promises judgment. Right. And so that word mm-hmm. typically people think it's a scary word right. and they try to say that God is actually evil for, for judging the world right? But or that he's bad or that he's mean or whatever. Right. But actually judgment is when God comes and he makes everything right. Mm-hmm. Uh, D- David, <laughs> David Bentley Hart uh, says, says that um, the story of, you know, reconciling the world is actually a story uh, where God will, will judge much of history as, as false and damnable uh, that he will not simply reveal, you know, the, the logic of fallen nature, but he'll actually, what he says is he'll strike off the fetters in which creation languages. Mm -hmm. And that rather than showing us how or why the tears of a small girl suffering in the dark were necessary for the building of the kingdom, he will instead raise her up Mm -hmm. and wipe away all tears from her eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor any pain, for the former things will have passed away. And he will sit upon the throne and say, Behold, I make all things new. Yeah. That's the promise of the Christian faith. The mm-hmm. promise is not mm-hmm. that God intends evil right. or that evil is okay. Mm-hmm. The promise is that there is such a thing as evil. It's defined by God. And not only will it be struck down by him, it those that are affected by it will, will be restored mm-hmm. in, in in actuality right and so the the christian story in that way it, it does deal with evil mm-hmm. now i have sympathy for people who sit there and they say well i don't like the way that god set that up right i don't have an answer for you uh, you know yeah. I, I certainly mm-hmm. don't feel qualified to tell him he mm-hmm. should have done it a different way right there's a story called job where <laughs> that happens right right exactly. and you could read you can read that book in, yeah. in the bible <laughs> Um, but, but I understand thinking, man, I wish Mm -hmm. that evil wasn't in the world. Mm -hmm. You should wish that, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, and the fact that it is though, does not diminish the goodness of God. It has Mm -hmm. to do with the kind of world that he sets up and what it is that he actually wants from us. Right. And what one day, Mm -hmm. if we believe the promise, he will one day create and recreate in us, Mm -hmm. through us, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and make our reality. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 only thing that I think I want to wrap up with mm-hmm. is that 
in the Christian story, we do admit that there's a, actually we, we posit that we have a sin nature. Mm-hmm. So people are oftentimes disappointed in the church, right? And what Christians do. Oh yeah. And so I think that the explanation behind that is in the story of scripture. It's mm-hmm. intrinsic to the story itself. Right. And so we are being sanctified, hopefully. Yes. <laughs> but you and I as Christians, we are not fully living in glory. <laughs> and all of the things of this world that are affected by sin are within us to to some degree or another as well. And so the church has disappointed because humans disappoint. Mm-hmm. And we are human. Right. And we're not fully realized. Nope. As one day we will be. Right. And so I would grant people who say, well, the church abuses people. That's true. Mm -hmm. I would argue with you that the church abuses people at a higher (laughs) degree than, than, you know, outside of the church. That's Mm -hmm. not true. I think it's it's a a human sin problem Mm -hmm. that certainly infects the church. The church has done bad things. Mm -hmm. Um, Things have happened in the name of Christianity. Mm -hmm that they shouldn't but you know you look at the history of the world and people use whatever's in front of them to get what they want right Uh, the christian wars of the 14 15 1600s were not really in the name of christianity right it was in the name of the nation state right and how do you rally people together you use what you have in front of you religion Mm -hmm. ultimate belief in something is a good tool that people use Mm And abuse right. to get people on their side and to make everyone feel like they're on the side of the angels right. fighting the demons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that that's inherent in the Christian un- understanding of, of ethics. Right. Like just because there's a nation who claims to be Christian mm-hmm. who does something bad, that does not mean that that's what the Christian faith and tradition says. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I would grant that the church is not perfect. Right. And, you know, if you're part of 514 Church, you're Mm going to experience things here that are not perfect. Right. And there'll be mistakes made and there'll be apologies made. Um, But that is part of the Mm pre-glorified reality of of the world. Right. And one of the things that I do think is important for people to understand is that as we've talked about ethics and Mm -hmm. all this, it is amazing that because of the Christian faith, we even sit like this mm-hmm. and contemplate right. something like right and wrong. Yep. Something like care for the poor mm-hmm. and the destitute mm-hmm. and the value of human life and right. the intrinsic value of, 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 of beings. And, mm-hmm. you know, that in and of itself is, is almost miraculous. Mm-hmm. It's the, the movement of the kingdom of God mm-hmm. that we might even care about those things. Yep. And that we might even have the moral code that we so imperfectly hold up. Right. That right. it's there at all mm-hmm. is a movement of the spirit and a beautiful thing that, that, that I think we should, we should celebrate. Mm-hmm. And, of course, um, in prayer, continue to try to, to do better at. Absolutely. To not be perpetrators of the evil that we claim right. is one day going to be destroyed and raised mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and resurrected uh, in a glorified way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so I think that about covers it. Yeah. Uh, had a really good time discussing this with you, Sean. Yeah, thanks. I enjoyed it too. Um, I think maybe, I mean, hopefully in the future we do some more, yeah. some more stuff. Maybe, maybe people have questions. I want to yeah. invite <laughs> you to, to reach out. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have any questions about anything that you hear 
and you want to reach out to uh, info. Send all your questions to Joel or Carmen. Uh, <laughs> Just kidding. If you, uh, <laughs> if you reach out to info at F-I-V-E and then the number one for church.com, uh, we would be happy to call you, talk to you, have a conversation with you, uh, whatever it mm-hmm. is. And we just hope that these last, um, you know, these, these five podcasts and the class that we're doing here help mm-hmm. to build a foundation for yes. the fact that we as Christians get to walk around knowing that what we believe is a reasonable thing to believe mm-hmm. and that there are fundamental questions of life that we have to answer that we think we have actually mm-hmm. good reasonable answers to mm-hmm. and so what a beautiful thing it is that god has revealed himself in this way absolutely yeah. so thank you sean i appreciate it and thank you to everybody who's listening see you guys soon 